Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast where we explore the origins and development of the DC multiverse and the legacy of Golden Age heroes throughout the Silver and Broad Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. He is Peter Watson and I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. We are doing another Wonder Woman. Well, we're doing two Wonder Woman stories this week, aren't we? Yes. Uh-huh, yeah. um, let regular listeners, thank you listeners, um, will remember that just before Christmas we flashed back to a story from Wonder Woman issue 100 because in our ongoing studies and planning and research, you know, we'd uncovered a few stories which we thought we should cover. And regular listeners will know that we recently did a, a Supergirl story from Action Comics where Supergirl visited another world, etc., and met another kind of version of herself. And these were sort of uncovered because of Peter's continued sort of researches and digging. And amongst all of that researching and digging, Peter has uncovered something else. <laughs> yes, yes. Yet another Wonder Woman story. This is from Wonder Woman at number 89. There's three stories in this issue. Mm-hmm. And the one we're concerned with is the master of Earth's twin worlds. Yep. Now, from what we can tell, this is actually the second parallel universe story yes. ever in DC. From what we can tell from our research, I can't find anything else in between. And I was I was very surprised when this came up. Yeah, and I'm delighted and amused by the significance of the fact that it's again, it's Wonder Woman. You know, yeah, she it's bizarre. Struck by lightning and all that and passed through and met Princess Tara or Terra. Tara Taruna. Yeah, and then, of course, her, her recent, as our crow flies, her recent escapade in the Forest of Giants in Dimension X. Yes. So we're now, yeah, as Pete says, we're doing a story from Wonder Woman issue 89, which was published in February 1957, which obviously predates issue 100 in Dimension X by a little while, and was dated April 1957. It's a story written by Robert Kaniger, who we're going to be talking about a lot in the next week. Oh, yes. yes we've already talked about, about <laughs> him a bit, but we'll be talking about him a bit more in the next week or two. Yeah. And it was drawn by Harry G. Peter, it's not an epic by any stretch. We'll probably get through it fairly quickly. And then we'll be moving yeah. on to a story from issue 158 of Wonder Woman. But we'll get to that in due course. So the master of Earth's twin worlds, it's not in the cover, is it? The cover is uh, a flying saucer, Ooh. Uh, which is uh, beaming a big purple ray down at Wonder Woman. Interesting. Wonder Woman's thinking, that flying saucer, it's landing. Gosh. And it's absolutely nothing to do with the story we're going to talk about. Yeah. So <laughs> well, hopefully we haven't teased you too much with that, listeners, and now disappointed you as a result. Shall we crack on with the story then? Absolutely, yes. Did you ever count how many times you turn lights on and off? Of course not. There's no reason for you to. But what if the mere turning on of a light meant that you would vanish? What would you do then? Would it be possible for you to avoid turning on a light? That is the startling dilemma, Wonder Woman, beautiful as Aphrodite, wise as Athena, swifter than Mercury, and stronger than Hercules, finds herself in, in the most unusual adventure of all time, the The master master of Earth's twin world. And this opening splash page, it's almost like Wonder Woman is looking at two large comic panels, one of which shows, is it the Empire State Building? It's certainly similar to it, yeah. Yeah, a building very like the Empire State Building, on one side looking fine and the street is down below, the cars and people are on the pavement and all that. And then on the right-hand panel that she's looking at, the, the building's toppling forward and splitting in the middle and people and cars are rushing about in panic. And Wonder Woman is beholding these two panels and she's saying, Merciful Minerva, which is the real world! So the story opens. After an arduous day at military intelligence, Lieutenant Diana Prince returns to her apartment. 
And we see Diana in her very comfortably fashioned apartment. There's a nice table side lamp. And she's taking off her hat because she's getting changed. And indeed she says, I have to change for the statue dedication ceremonies. With eye-blurring speed, Di changes into her secret identity of Wonder Woman. And a nice little sequence in this panel from right to left of Diana removing her military tunic, loosening her hair, and then finally being in her Wonder Woman get-up. And she's saying, After that, back here to prepare dinner for Steve. I'm sure he's going to propose to me again. And I'll have to explain again that I cannot marry him and retire from crime-fighting until my services are no longer needed. And then in panel three of page two, we see her operating a light switch with a nice click. And she says, it's almost dark. Time to turn on the light. To the Amazon's amazement, she suddenly finds herself no longer in the apartment she occupies in her secret identity of Lieutenant Diana Prince. But... And as Diana says, shades of Pluto, I'm in Pisa. And there's the famous leaning tower about to fall. And sure enough, there's a very well-rendered Leaning Tower of Pisa, and it looks like it has indeed reached its breaking point. It's stepping over, and there are people, some of whom look as if they're in full armour, <laughs> but I guess it's just the, <laughs> I guess it's just their hats. Yeah, it's very period-looking, isn't it? Yeah. Horses and carts and yeah, things. The and very sort of medieval villager-looking types, um, people running about underneath it, and so... Revolving at fantastic speed, Wonder Woman instantly bores into the earth. And we see Diana turning at speed with a brrrr sound effect, you know, like a human corkscrew, and she's saying, Here I help my plan succeed. In a fraction of a second, the human drill reaches the spot she is aiming for, and turning upwards toward the surface. This is great. We see Diana underground with a brrrr sound effect as she continues to turn and dig under, under the tower, and she's thinking, The lives of many people depend on my being exactly right. I must question uh, Diana's decision to do this head first. <laughs> you think, you know, if you're digging or drilling, you know, I don't think doing it with your face is uh, the best way to go. But hey, I'm not an Amazon, what do I know? <laughs> so we arrive at the top of page three and the caption says, Suddenly, Wonder Woman reaches. Diana comes to a halt thinking, Thank Hira, I've reached the base of the Leaning Tower. And sure enough, we can see her grabbing hold of the tower, which is obviously pulling it back into place for the caption for the next panel says as the mighty amazon exerts all her strength in a tremendous surge and we see the tower has a slight quiver slight shake going on as it's been pulled right up into position one of the people on the the ground in front of it shouts look we are saved and the lady in the crowd shouts the tower does not lean anymore and one final observer says it stands straight now Terrific. Now we cut to close-up for Diana for the next panel. The caption says, With the tower no longer a threat, Wonder Woman is about to surface. This is a nice panel. Diana in extreme close-up. She does look very Gal Gadot, it must be said. <laughs> we can see the tower behind her in the background. Her hand is in the frame. Her finger is poised if she's thinking. And indeed Diana says, Now to find out how I got here. And... And then, with the swiftness of thought... Diana is suddenly back in her apartment, her finger pausing at the light switch almost, and she's thinking, Thunderbolts of Jove, I'm back in my apartment. I remember now, it all started when I opened the light. One moment I was here, the next thousands of miles away. But how? A moment later, the perplexed Wonder Woman is racing towards City Square. So this panel at the top of page four, we see Diana rushing and uh, rushing forward. There's a crowd in front of her, some men sort of in a raised little box, the United States flag sort of draped around it, there's a giant eagle, so... The eagle looks as if it's holding a, a torch in its beak. Yeah. This must be part of the ceremony, obviously. And as she moves forward, she's saying, I can't stop now to figure out the mystery of how I was transported to another continent in a twinkling of an eye. First, I have to speak at the dedication ceremonies. On the official stand, the popular Amazon completes her speech. 
and so you see that crime, no matter where it may strike from, must crumble before justice. So yes, which is on the officials that stand, and we can see a bit more detail of the US flag. And I don't mean the G.I. Joe waterbound transport. I mean the United States flag that's draped around the outside of the box that they're in. That's quite interesting. And anyway, there's a man at the ceremony behind her. He's obviously one of the officials, and he says... Thank you, Wonder Woman. And now, if you will press this button, the torch in the statue of the Eagle of Truth will light up. Tremendous. And then the caption for the next panel says... Wonder Woman presses the button. And we see Diana doing so, pressing a button, and there's a bzzz sound effect coming from it. And, to her consternation, discovers... And like before, Wonder Woman is suddenly elsewhere. There's a mountain in front of her. There's a rumble sound effect at the top. It looks like some men climb up the side. And Wonder Woman declares, Suffering Sappho, I'm at Mount Everest, and an avalanche is thundering down to a party of trapped climbers. At eye-blurring speed, Wonder Woman races up the snowy slopes into the very avalanche itself. The rumbling avalanche continues. Wonder Woman speeds forward, saying, These poor climbers will be buried by the snow, unless I can help them. We can see the climbers raising their sticks. They're obviously starting to panic. The caption for the next panel says, Hurtling through the tons of falling snow, the mighty Amazon squeezes the huge trunks with tremendous pressure. And this final panel of page four, Wonder Woman, is, she's got a hold of the snow, basically she's using all her strength to arrest it, it's moving, and she's saying, the next moment will show whether I've succeeded, or... And then we move to the top of page five. The incredible pressure turns the massive avalanche of snow into harmless rain. Wow! That's very impressive, isn't it? It certainly is, yes. Gosh. That's an interesting panel, because it looks like Wonder Woman is sort of holding onto the snow, and obviously, it just looks like basically she's got a hold of it. And as it passes past her, she has squeezed it. And it's just turning into a sort of torrent. Yeah. And the climbers, it all looks like they're slight. One of whom is obviously in shorts, at least. <laughs> Silly, confident man climbing Everest in his shorts. Mm. They're obviously, um, it looks like they're being washed away. It's quite funny, actually. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so in the act of doing this, Wonder Woman says, Now... I'll have a chance to try to find out how I was suddenly transported from City Square to the other end of the... Wo but in that same instant... And Wonder Woman is back on the stand at the dedication ceremony, and the man who was there before says... Thank you for lighting the statue, Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman thinks, Merciful Minerva, no one even noticed that I was gone. If time did not pass here at the same rate that it did where I was taken, that I must have been in a parallel world, one existing side by side with ours. As the perplexed Amazon slowly walks toward her apartment house... And in close-up, Diana is thinking, There's one thing I'm sure of. I was whisked away both times when I switched on the light. So I'll be very careful not to turn on a light. In front of her building, Wonder Woman pauses. And we see Wonder Woman. Um, she's stopped at her jeep, which is parked outside her place. And she's opening the door. And as she's doing so, there's a very significant click sound effect. Wonder Woman is saying... I left the present I got for Steve in the glove compartment in my jeep. It's a good thing I remembered it before he called for din. But as she opens the car door, the Amazon forgets that this automatically switches on the light. And... And suddenly, Wonder Woman is once again elsewhere. She's on the hour hand of a giant clock face. And there's a big tick-tock as the, as the minute hand sort of is moving round. And she exclaims, Great Hera! I'm on the hour hand of the most famous clock in the world, Big Ben in London, and, and there's a time bomb attached to the minute hand. And sure enough, there is a parcel bundled up with string and tied to the minute hand, which is closing on the hour. So, move to the top of page six, and the caption says, 
On the famous clock, Wonder Woman's mind races at top speed. It's one second to three o'clock. The bomb will probably go off when the clock strikes the hour. Diana swings down from the, the hour hand. And the caption for the next panel says... As Big Ben starts to strike, the Amazon hurls her weight against the hour hand. I love the bong bong going on here. So Wonder Woman is using her strength to push against the hour hand. She's swinging back up towards the ticking and talking bomb. And she says... I've got to get this bar off before the clock makes its third strike. And the caption for the next panel says, With incredible daring, Wonder Woman swings on the hour hand, past the minute hand, and... Yeah, that's what she's done. She has swung the hour hand back up so that it has gone in an anti-clockwise direction, past the minute hand, letting her grab the bomb. The final bong chimes out as Diana swings round and she says, Thank Hera, I detached the bomb just in time. Now to find out what I'm doing here. But in that same instant... And she is suddenly back on the street outside her apartment, beside her jeep, with her hand on the door handle. And she says, I'm back at the jeep, back where I started when I opened the door and the light. From now on, I'll be on my guard and make sure I don't turn on any light. A slow dissolve in the caption for the next panel says, Shortly, the lovely Amazon prepares dinner for her sweetheart, and... And this is lovely. I would love to see this with Chris Pine and Gal Gadot. There's a three-pronged candle holder on the very small table <laughs> that they're sat at. True. It looks like Steve's drinking his coffee. And Steve Trevor is saying, That was romantic of you, Angel, serving dinner by candlelight. And Wonder Woman thinks, He doesn't know that I had an entirely different reason for the candles, that I used them to avoid putting on any lights. Just then... And then suddenly there's a little gust of wind. There's a nice little puff sound effect and it blows out the candles. And Steve says, A gust of wind blew out the candles. But it's all right, sweetheart. I'll switch on this light. And Wonder Woman thinks, Great Hera, I can't let him. Who knows what might happen to him if he did? As Steve reaches for the very handy lamp which is beside the table, The self-sacrificing Amazon hurtles at the light cord, and it is her fingers that turn it on. An extreme close-up, we see an immaculately manicured hand, and a click suddenly flaring as the light appears to have come on. And then suddenly, we're on the top of page seven. The moment she pulls the light cord, Wonder Woman finds herself. Now, this is a weird one. Having having been in Paris quite recently, <laughs> I'm not quite sure to recognise <laughs> the, um, the layout of where we are, but basically, we can see the Eiffel Tower, and it looks like it's glowing. It looks like it's radiating. In fact, it looks like it's bright red. There's hundreds of people swarming around it underneath and running away from it. Wonder Woman seems to be standing over looking at it from a sort of rocky outcrop and she says, Shades of Pluto, I've been transported to the Eiffel Tower and it's red hot. If I don't cool it down, it will melt. And to cause further geographical confusion, <laughs> the caption for the next panel says, At lightning speed, the fleet Amazon races to the ocean. Wow. She must have gone very quickly. Indeed. Using the speed of Mercury. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she must have done. See Wonder Woman diving off the cliff into the water. And she's saying, I've got to swim north faster than I ever have in my whole life. Soon her Amazon lasso whirls out. See Wonder Woman in the water and she's lassoing a massive iceberg that's in the water in front of her. And she's saying, that iceberg seems to be the right size. At immeasurable speed, the tireless Amazon flashes back to the torrid tower. And whirling her gigantic iceberg at it... This is astonishing. Diana has lassoed the iceberg in the direction of the tower. The iceberg is all splitting up with a giant crack. And it genuinely looks like the Eiffel Tower is in the middle of a desert here with a few bushes around it. 
it's very interesting. I'm going to be sending this page to my friend who, was, who I visited recently. And as the iceberg cracks over the tower, Diana says, There, by Jove's thunderbolts, that will cool it off. The tower is no danger to the people now. And as we move to the top of page eight, the caption says, Suddenly... And then, out of nowhere, has burst a man wearing a sort of loose-fitting red top. We, we see later on he's wearing red trousers and his black boots. He has very pointy ears, very thick eyebrows, very large nose, kind of dark sort of curly hair, which is almost a, a mullet with the way his, it folds around his ears. He has a moustache and a beard. He looks very satanic. Do you know what? He looks almost like a caricatured version of the master from Doctor Who, if that's a useful reference, you know, especially <laughs> Roger Delgado or Anthony Ailey. And that's interesting because this mm. man who suddenly appeared says... Wonder Woman, you've escaped every trap I've set for you in my parallel world, but you won't escape me. He's pointing a gun at Diana, and Wonder Woman says, I thought that wasn't the real leading tower of Pisa, the real Mount Everest, the real Big Ben, or the real Eiffel Tower of my world that I dealt with. Caption for the next panel. The diabolical villain's ray gun sends Wonder Woman sprawling. Indeed, there's a little blast of energy firing from the gun. Wonder Woman falls back, and the gentleman in red says, No. They were duplicates of my world, a world in which I am master, a world in which, unlike yours, crime, not justice, triumphs. And he continues in the next panel in close-up. I arrange your transition here every time you opened a light, figuring that sooner or later you would succumb to the dangers in your path. But I finally realised that I would have to eliminate you myself before you began battling crime in my world. Caption for the next panel says... Suddenly... And Wonder Woman cries, Look out! Look out! Because we are basically standing at the foot of the Eiffel Tower. And we can see in the background that some of the ice from the iceberg is starting to rumble down and fall towards them. But the man in red says... Surely you don't expect to catch me off guard with an old trick like that, Wonder Woman. Nothing you can do can save you now! But then the caption for the next panel says... But with a thunderous roar... And we see a massive rumble as the ice falls down from the tower totally covers the man in red. Wonder Woman with her hands up to her face says, I was trying to warn him that he was in the path of falling ice from the tower, but he wouldn't believe me. How ironical, if he hadn't numbed me with his ray gun, I would have been able to save him. And then the caption for the final panel of the story says, The next instant, the intrepid Amazon is back in her own world again. And we see that Steve's hand and Diana's hand have met as they've both reached for the, the switch for the lamp beside the table. And Steve says, Why, honey, you look as if you jumped across a world to put your hand in mine. And Diana says, Perhaps I did. The, the end. end. <laughs> that is one of the most bonkers stories we've covered. Oh, man. It was so economical, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's called The Master of Twin Worlds, and the master turns up just for the final page. He's in four parts. Uh -huh. Five, yes. counting the one where he's buried under ice. Uh, <laughs> it's insane it is totally bonkers Robert Kaniger madness it's a throwaway parallel world it's, yes it's bonkers throwaway is the word it's so dis the word I would say but perhaps is maybe is disposable mm -hmm. that could have been 16 pages quite easily we could have had a bit more information about the parallel world why the, the Tower of Pisa and the Eiffel Tower looked sort of different yeah Pisa definitely looked kind of medieval and as you said the desert around Eiffel Tower is bizarre and the way he's just sort of crushed by the, the falling ice that must have taken ages to fall from the top of the tower, given that they had time to have a whole conversation before it happened. Surely if you throw an iceberg at the Eiffel Tower, it's going to cause some damage. Yes, I think. <laughs>
Hi. <laughs> he does look like a very caricatured comic strip version of the master from Doctor Who. If the master had turned up in TV comic in the 1960s, yeah. that's what he would have looked like. I want to see this guy in Crisis and Infinite Earths. Can you imagine? He's got the power to like transport people from parallel Earths. Yeah, at the flick of a switch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally at the flick of a switch. How does that even work? And then how does she suddenly end up back? Yeah. Does it wear off? Does it, you know, does she, does, has he automatically sent her back because he has failed to dispose of her or she has beaten him, whatever nefarious bit of nonsense he was up to? There are a lot of questions. There's no explanation for anything in this story. Nope. Do apologise, listeners. The story is as mad as we said it. We've not missed anything out. It's just bonkers. Even the opening splash panel, which looks as if, you know, the, the Empire State Building is, yeah. is being twit, but then that doesn't actually happen in the story. Yeah. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Robert Kaniger. We've had a few stories in the past where people have been struck by lightning and, you know, sent to parallel worlds or other universities or whatever. And this is interesting because every time Wonder Woman flicks a switch, electricity is involved again. It reminds me of Lois Lane's typewriter. Yes, of course. The girl who won for Superman. It was a lightning strike that took her from Earth 1 to the parallel world in the first place. And, of course, the, the water spilling and the electric typewriter that brought her back afterwards. Yeah. I, I'm sure it's uh, not the last time we're going to see electricity used uh, to transfer people between parallel worlds. Aye. Anyway, I did enjoy it more than some stories we've covered. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing that I have to say again is I'm still fascinated by the fact that of all the heroes that statistically we've we've had to flash back to and evoke and talk about, Wonder Woman's had all these adventures on parallel worlds and meeting doubles. I mean, this is that's what three before Flash for Wonder Woman alone before Flash (laughs) issue one hundred and twenty three. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I've said this before, and I will say it again. I might even say it again in this episode. I did not anticipate us talking about Wonder Woman quite so much at this early stage. No. There is the whole run, of course, when we we get to the 70s, when we'll be talking about her for a fair bit. Um, And obviously she's involved Mm -hmm. in Crisis and many of the Justice League and Justice Act team-ups. It's been interesting doing all this Wonder Woman archaeology. And there will be a little bit more Wonder Woman in the immediate future. Yeah. Sadly, there's no reader reaction eh, from the time, which is a shame, really, because I would love to have heard what people actually thought <laughs> yes. of these stories. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, have, I don't have any reader reaction from the time, I'm afraid. It's the definition of disposable, but mm-hmm. give it another, as I say, another few pages, and it could have been a bit more memorable, a bit more interesting. So, that was it for Wonder Woman issue 89 and the, the Master of the Twin Worlds. We're now going to skip back to a regular sort of chronology, moving back to 1965. And we're now going to talk about a story from issue 158 of Wonder Woman, which was published in September 1965 with a cover date of November 1965. There's an awful lot to say about this one. We'll get, again, it's not a very long story. We'll get through it and we'll, there'll be a lot to say yeah. once we get to the other end. True. Now, this is not the cover story. No, there are two stories in this issue. The first story, it's uh, the classic Wonder Woman villain, Egg Foo, is dispatched in that one. <laughs> Uh, you'll see the cover image when we post it. Eggfu is so problematic, isn't it's, he? It's ridiculous. It's kind of like Wodok, except with yolks. Yeah, so he's the first story, and is dispatched at the end of mm-hmm. that. And then we've got a fairly short, but very, very, very interesting second story in it, mm. which is titled... The, the End or the, the beginning. beginning. Shall we just get straight into the story then, Peter? Let's do it, yes. So there are no opening splash pages or panels or anything. We're straight into the story. It's almost like it picks up mid-scene, almost. So we open on a close-up panel of Wonder Woman looking slightly distressed, tears in her eyes, and she looks very harassed and worried, and she's saying, Dear readers, what you're about to read is so shocking that I, I can't bear to be a witness to the murder. Yes, I said murder. In the next panel, 
We see Wonder Woman jumping into her invisible jet, which is speeding through the air, and she continues, I don't want to be around when it happens. I'll fly home to Paradise Island, where I may be able to forget. Plane, head south by southeast at top speed. Then we have a slow dissolve, and a caption says, In front of a certain editor's window of a certain publishing company's offices in a certain city. And we can see some kids who are all protesting. They look at sort of teenagers as a policeman frowning at them and they're carrying placards. One of them says, join the comic fanzine picket line. The next one says, stop killing our Wonder Woman. And another lad is carrying a placard and it says, golden ages of the world unite. The next one says, we want justice. And a bespectacled Poindexter laddie is carrying one saying, down with the editor who's killing the Amazon. And the final sign says, action now. In the next panel, the kids are all talking about what's going on. And we see one boy saying, Get your Golden Age zines hard off the press. And he seems to be carrying a sign that says, Golden Ages of the World Unite, I think that says behind his head. Yeah. There's a girl beside him holding up a comic saying, Complete your collection with my collector's items. And a young man, who a boy who looks very much like a youthful version of um, Roshark from Watchmen. <gasps> yes. <laughs> it has to be said. Uh-huh. Um, Holding a placard as well. Yeah. This is obviously the secret origin of Roshark. Mm. Surprise, Watchmen fans and the listeners. So anyway, Kid Roshark is saying... I knew you couldn't trust him to handle our Wonder Woman. When I read, he wears a sport jacket and a yellow bow tie. And in the next panel, we get a close-up of Poindexter who says... but. I heard no one has ever seen him wear any bow tie. And the kid next to him says, Shut up, you're interfering with the freedom of the press. And the girl beside him is saying, Where is Wonder Woman? What's he done with her? She was supposed to meet us. We move on to page two, and the caption for the first panel says, And in that certain editor's office, a startling assembly. And we have the view over the shoulder of the editor, who is unnamed, but we're pretty sure who it is, aren't we, Peter? (laughs) Yes, I would say so. I would say this is definitely Robert Kaniger, given who he's talking to. Kaniger is addressing the supporting cast of the Wonder Woman comics, and very helpfully, because he identifies them, he says, Wonder Tat, Wonder Girl, Wonder Queen, Colonel Steve Trevor, Murboy, Bird Boy, Mano, Birdman, The Glop, etc., I have a very painful duty to perform. And Queen Hippolyta is obviously amongst the assembled cast here, and she says, You don't have to tell us. We know. It's a terrible decision to make. I'm glad I don't have to make it. We cut back to the kids on the pavement, and we can see some of the signs like, Action now, stop killing our Wonder Woman. And the first kid on the left says, Where's Wonder Woman? Why isn't she here? And the next one says, She knew we had this meeting. What's keeping her? And the next girl says, What could be more important than meeting our simple requests? (laughs) And young Roshark is saying, Maybe it's his fault. I read that he spends not less than 20 minutes bawling out every fan coming into his office. And Poindexter's there again, and he says, If he really did that, how can he have the time to edit eight magazines, annuals, and specials? And one final boy is saying, Shut up! You're interfering with the freedom of the press again! So it's quite a scene going on. Yes. Wonder Woman's in a state of distress and there's a Robert Kaniger's having a meeting with a supporting cast and the kids are protesting in the streets. So we get to the top of page three and a caption says, Meanwhile, as the anguished Wonder Woman flashes toward Paradise Island in her unique robot plane. Wonder Woman's in her plane, spinning through the air, and she sees some other planes flying ahead of her. And so she says, It's the Amazon Swan Fleet. I'll join them in patrolling the waters off the island. It'll help me to forget what is going to happen. 
I'll signal them. Hola. Wonder Woman calling Swanfleet. Request permission to join you. To the Amazon's bewilderment. Thunderbolts of Jove. They're opening fire on me. Wonder Woman looks very, very concerned on that close-up panel because the next panel we see, indeed, the Swanfleet is firing on her invisible plane. And she says, My sister Amazons couldn't possibly mistake my plane for a hostile aircraft. They couldn't all have gone mad. As the explosions continue to echo around the aeroplane, she jumps out, saying, There can be only one explanation for this attack. That's not the Swan Fleet, and it's not manned by Amazons. There's a quick way of finding out the truth. Gaily, the fearless Amazon catches the massive missiles on her bracelets made of Amazonium, hardest metal ever devised. I'll play a little game of bullets and bracelets. Hola! Hola! And with some zing sound effects, we can see that she's deflecting the missiles that are being fired towards her. We move on to the top of page four. The missiles rebound against the fleet and... We see the planes breaking up under impact with some very helpful large blam sound effects. People revealed inside the exploding planes and Wonder Woman declares, Thunderbolts of Jove, that's the Martian fleet of the Duke of Deception. Camouflaged as the Amazon Swan Fleet. Why this sudden sneak attack? With a lightning cast of her golden lasso. It's the Duke of Deception himself, falling out of his wrecked ship. I'd better catch him before that old Martian renegade breaks his neck. And sure enough, Wonder Woman lassoes the Duke of Deception as he starts to fall. In the next panel, she has successfully snared him. She says, My magic lasso compels you to obey. Dukey, don't you ever learn you can't beat an Amazon? Why this sudden attack? I order you to answer. Tell me the truth. I must obey the truth. You know, the killing he's preparing to do at this very moment. I may be a victim. This may have been my last chance to to commit a great act of villainy. If I have to go, I, I wanted to end my career with a vile triumph, destroying Paradise Island. It would have been something to remember me by. Do you understand? Wonder Woman, still standing on the wing of her plane, says, I understand, but I don't sympathise with your acts of villainy. Go back to Mars and reform. Simmer down. Or you'll end up just ahead of steam. I'll be out to check up on you. So behave yourself. Now get into orbit. Farewell. And she releases him from the lasso. And the Duke of Deception says, If I'd never see you again because of him, it was a pleasure trying to deceive you, Wonder Woman. A slow dissolve now as we reach the top of page five. As Wonder Woman alights on the island home of the Amazons. And Wonder Woman is leaping down from her invisible plane and you can see lots of the Amazons sitting and standing around. They don't look very happy. And Wonder Woman says, Suffering Sappho, look at them. All waiting. Waiting for the axe to fall. Wonder Woman is now on the ground. She's eavesdropping in the conversation that some Amazons are having. The first Amazon says, I can't stand the suspense. It's killing me. And the next one says, I wonder who will be left when he gets through. And the next one, from the back, looks a bit like my mum, circa 1965, <laughs> says, Maybe he'll be merciful. I read somewhere that he wears a yellow bow tie. And the last one is shocked by this, and she says, Merciful Minerva, a yellow bow tie. Genghis Khan wore a yellow bow tie. We're doomed, doomed, doomed. That part obviously being played by Private Fraser from Dad's Army. <laughs> 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 and the Amazons notice that Wonder Woman is now there. The first one that spots her says, Wonder Woman, who is he going to spare? And the next one says, Will anyone be left? And the last one says, Beg him to have mercy, princess. Wonder Woman takes a leave of the Amazons. She says, leaping up into the air, I, I can't stand it any longer. I'm, I'm going back. I've got to find out what he's going to do. I must say, on this page, every single person looks 
completely distressed. It's absolutely brilliant work from Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito here. It's great stuff. They do all look very different as well. Yeah, huh? You know, there's no sort of generic sort of Kurt Swan style, much as I love them. Mm. Kurt Swan style. They all, you know, the proportions of their features are all quite different. It's, it's really nice. Yeah. So Wonder Woman's back on the invisible plane. The caption says, Back from Paradise Island in her flashing Amazon plane, Hurtles Wonder Woman. So gorgeous panels, the plane flies off, we can see the sun set and the sky's nice red, there's some clouds, we can see the water and the sea breaking against the island, it's gorgeous. Anyway, the caption for the next panel says, Suddenly... And Wonder Woman is in her invisible plane, she's over a city, and she's exclaiming, Suffering Sappho, a plane, trailing smoke, plunging towards that skyscraper. And sure enough, we can see what looks like a big commercial jet pitching down towards the city. Top of page six, and the caption says, Leaping onto her robot ship. Wonder Woman snaps her magic lasso. Here, help me stop that plane from crashing into that skyscraper. And this is impressive. You know, she basically lassoes the end sort of tail wings of the aeroplane. That's phenomenal. And the caption for the next panel says, As easily as if it were a mere toy, the mighty Amazon whirls the giant airliner around her. <laughs> Amazing. Right, so at this point we can tell that the, the rear of the plane had been on fire and she's been spinning the plane around her head because she's saying, Thank Hera. I've whipped out the flames. Now to land the plane safely. I worry about the passengers. Because, and... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we should cut to the inside of the plane and see them being flung around and bounced off the ceiling and off the floor. Good grief. Crushed with centrifugal force. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, the caption for the next panel. At the nearest safe area, Wonder Woman lowers the massive aircraft. Sure enough, it looks like she's found a, a park or some playing fields or some open space in the middle of the city. And she's lowered the aeroplane, and she's standing on the wing of her own plane, and she's saying, Funny, I haven't heard a sound or seen a single face at any of the windows of that plane. i better go aboard and see what's happened to the passengers. Plane, circle. They're probably all crushed in there, Wonder Woman, after you're spinning it round. <laughs> They're probably all dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's find out, shall we? Think it through, Diana, come on. <laughs> but... As a celebrated Amazon leaps to the wing of the landed plane. Thunderbolts of Jove. Gunfire's coming at me from every window. Sure enough, we can see some pow-pow and kapow and zing sound effects as bullets are fired at Wonder Woman from the windows of the plane. In the next panel, she uses her bracelets to deflect them, saying, Hola! Let's see how long they'll play bullets and bracelets with me. And we see emerging from a doorway inside of the plane, it's a man in a suit with a sort of top hat, and he's throwing out a gun. And Wonder Woman says, It's Angleman and his gang. And Angleman says, Get out the lead volleyball, Wonder Woman. You've beaten us again. Blasted. We surrender. Top of page seven, and Wonder Woman has the Angleman and his gang all lassoed tightly. Wonder Woman's magic lasso compels the Angleman to confess. And sure enough, he says, This whole thing was my angle. A fake crash to trap you into rescuing us and becoming my prisoner, so I could use you to bargain with him. And the next panel shows a couple of policemen leading off the angle man, who kind of looks like a cross between Zatara and the Shade. He does, yes. He's in a state of great consternation because he's proclaiming, Wonder Woman, tell me, what's his angle? What's he going to do with me? I'm Angle Man. I thought I knew all the angles, but I read he wears a yellow bow tie. <laughs> you could never figure out what angle a guy like that'll pull. He's got me blowing my top. What's his angle? What's his angle? The next panel shows Wonder Woman's invisible jet flying off again. And she's saying, I, I can't stand it any longer either. I'm going to find out right now. I'm going to his office. Meanwhile, in that certain editor's office. And again, we see the supporting cast all lined up from the back view of who we purport to be Robert Kaniger. And he's saying, Wonder Tat, Wonder Girl, Mer Boy, Bird Boy, Mano... 
Birdman the Glop. Always remember that no matter what happens to you, I created you. And I'll always love you. Just as much as Black Canary, the Harlequin, the Star Sapphire, and the rest of my brain children. And the next panel is about as metaphysical as we've got so far, I think, on the podcast, wouldn't you say? Yes, definitely. Because we've had a few sort of interruptions from off Prime, but this panel basically shows that Kanagar has opened a drawer in his desk and he's throwing photographs of Wonder Girl, Mare Boy Nagloop, into this drawer. And he's thinking, But I'm retiring you as of now. The caption for the next panel. At that moment, dashing in through a back door, Wonder Woman busts into the room declaring, Merciful Minerva, you've done it. You've really done it. You've killed them all. You've only left my mother and Steve. What are you going to do with us? And we see that Robert Kanegar has his feet up on the desk and standing in front of him are a couple of other lads, one of whom is doing a sort of We're Not Worthy, Wayne's World style bow hand gesture in front of him <laughs> and the other one is saluting. And Robert Kanegar's pointing and he's saying, You'll soon see. Ross Andrew, Mike Esposito, get to work. Yes, he's obviously replying to Wonder Woman there and presumably Mike Esposito, who's doing We're Not Worthy, and he says, Yes, master. <laughs> That's exactly how I've always imagined how Mike Esposito would talk. So now we go to the final page of this story and the caption says, On the balcony outside shortly appears the golden age figure of... And it's Wonder Woman. She's out in the balcony with Steve Trevor and also with her mother. And we should point out significantly, Wonder Woman's mother's hair has turned black, mm -hmm. which is obviously something that we saw when we did 156 at the Golden Age, Wonder Woman's mum had black hair. And also in the balcony is Kaniger. But we don't, significantly, we don't see his face at any point through this story and we don't actually, <laughs> we don't actually see whether or not he actually does wear a yellow bow tie. Kaniger is standing with a scroll which he has unfurled and he's proclaiming to the world. Okay, fans, you've won. Starting with the December Wonder Woman number 159, we're going to make comics history. We're going to recreate the golden age, thrilling step by step. You will see the only authentic secret origin of the mighty Amazon, from her unique birth to the winning of her astonishing arsenal of weapons. Their extraordinary powers will be explained, as well as the punishment suffered by Wonder Woman when she loses them. All the secrets of the Amazons will be revealed. The Golden Age will live again. Don't miss your collector's copy of the December Wonder Woman number 159. Watch for it. And down on the street, we can see that the kids are all given up and walking home. They've got what they wanted. They're throwing the placards down onto the ground in a pile. And one girl says, Why are you still keeping your sign? You heard what he promised. And what looks like Washart Jr. is saying, and did you see? He wasn't wearing a yellow bow tie. And the Poindexter type boy says, How could you tell? He kept his face hidden by what he was reading from. Anyway, I'm going to keep my eyes on what's going to happen with Wonder Woman every ish from now on. The, the end. end. There we go. We should say the kids on the right look like John and Gillian from the Doctor Who comic strip of this period. <laughs> of this panel, I must say. So, this story is mental. Absolutely mental. It's not so much a story, it's just... It's a declaration of editorial policy, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. When we were doing a preparation for this, 
Peter made a very a very relevant and pertinent observation. This is this is the most Grant Morrison Silver Age comic you will ever see. <laughs> <laughs> in that it's very very what's known as meta because it is literally the characters almost like trying to argue for their own existence with their creator. It's just absolutely fascinating. And Andrew and will do a great job of everyone looking really panicked. We've already alluded, when we did Showcase 56, we mentioned a story of the Psycho Pirate popped uh-huh. up in that Grant Morrison did in yeah. Animal Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are scenes in Animal Man, spoilers if you haven't read it, but it's 30 years old, mm-hmm. so you should have read it by now. When Animal Man meets Grant Morrison face to face, I remember sort of a few voices in the Glasgow comic shop scene were very dismissive at the time. <laughs> thought it was very, very self-indulgent. I wouldn't name names. I was always very fond of it because it, it was Grant debating with Animal Man about the nature of reality and yeah. whether or not Animal Man's family deserved to live and all that sort of stuff. And it's very interesting mm-hmm. because basically this sort of tells us that Kanegar got there first. Yeah, absolutely. But this is genuinely heartbreaking. Again, like with the Animal Man one, you had Buddy talking to Grant saying, but you killed my family. He said, well, you know, we kind of needed drama. So that's that's what I did. And in this, you've got Kanagar doing pretty much the same sort of thing to try and shake up Wonder Woman. Yeah, so the kids out in the pavement are obviously symbolic of the readership, mm-hmm. presumably at this time. So, Pete, tell us a bit about that then, why, why this has happened. Well, as you heard from one of the letters we read out when we covered Wonder Woman 156, there was a certain faction that were looking for a change and looking for a return to the Golden Age style. And obviously... They did that Golden Age style issue, the kind of flashback in Wonder Woman 156 that we previously covered. And yeah. they've looked at the reaction to that. And this is very, very, very soon after it. So I think this is something that's maybe been on the cards regardless. Right. So they've decided to shake things up. Now, Kanagar is fascinating because he was actually on Wonder Woman as a writer and editor for 20 years. Really? When you think about that, it's insane. Yeah, 20 years. Blimey. I mean, Kanagar's someone I always think of as mainly from his war comics work uh-huh. you know it's it's fascinating to think that he was actually on Wonder Woman for as long as that it's, it's the thing that he worked on longest in his entire career and I don't want to be too dismissive because I don't know if anyone else actually wanted to take over Wonder Woman but when William Morton Marston passed away in 1947 Kanagar was doing a, the odd fill-in issue roughly at that time and they still had some of Marston's stories uh, in, in the bank so to speak so, so Marston's stories still appeared after his death there wasn't an exact cut-off period of when Kanagar began and Marston ended. There's some sort of debate as to some of the stories as to who wrote what then. But they were all pencilled by the same artist, so the actual transition wasn't quite as jarring, not quite as jolting sure. as you would expect, although there was a definite change in the tone of the comics. We'll talk about this more in our final Wonder Woman episodes next time when we look at the actual Golden Age story and the fallout from this issue. I think we'll talk, go into it in more detail mm-hmm. then because I think it fits mm-hmm. more with that story. Basically, in 1948, Kanagar picked up the reins uh, and was the writer and editor of Wonder Woman pretty much all the way through to 1968, when there was a big change. And that's insane. Right. I mean, can you imagine yeah. being the writer and editor of something for 20 years in a DC book these days? I mean... Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't happen, would it? Yeah. I mean, admittedly, in the Golden Age, you had Wonder Woman appearing in... Wonder Woman in All-Star Comics and Sensation Comics and also Comic Cavalcade so you had about 30 Wonder Woman stories in a year but mm-hmm. at that point yeah. uh, a lot of those comics were cancelled or she was dropped from them. Yeah because Comic Cavalcade became a, a funny animal book. All-Star um, became a western book you know it's uh, yeah. all that happened but so basically superheroes fell out of favour so although Wonder Woman was still in constant publication mm-hmm. it was only in the Wonder Woman title over that period yeah. and it only was I think it's bi-monthly for most of that time 
So it, it dropped from okay. being like 30 Wonder Woman stories a year to being, you know, six. So it doesn't quite sound as impressive yeah. when you say it that way, but still 20 years, right, the same characters. I know. He used to recycle a lot of his plots and even some of the titles of his stories. Uh, there was one, The Million Dollar Penny, I think that was one. He's used that a couple of times and it's the same premise both times. Right. I think he did the origin of Wonder Woman's Tiara about four times, so... That's the thing about comics at that time, though, because there's the off-quoted idea that in those days they felt that the comic audience renewed every five or six years, uh -huh. so there'd be no harm in doing stories that were mm -hmm. similar to ones they'd done already. You can see it on the covers of Superman stories, if you look at them through the 60s and 70s, that certain routines almost get reheated and ideas used again. It's very different from nowadays. Yeah. It obviously changed once fandom got properly established and people were paying attention to all these sort of things. And again, it's as I've said before, it's light years away from still from what Marvel were doing with their tight, coherent, formed universe. Yeah, absolutely. I really thought this story was fascinating because the characters are all, every single one of them, every, well, everyone who's got a line, basically, from the Amazons to yeah. the, the two villains that we meet, they all mm -hmm. know that they're comic book characters and they're worried what's going to happen. Yeah. And when Kanaker's got them all lined up in his office and he rhymes off who they all are, and then the next panel is him yeah. opening the drawer and throwing the pictures in there and it cuts to the next panel and they've yeah. gone. It's like he's literally transformed them I into know. panels and put them away. I, know. I mean, that that is mega meta. This is fantastic stuff. It's a level of storytelling sophistication that I'm really impressed uh -huh. to see at this point, given that, you know, as again, as we've said many times, some of the Superman family stories that we've covered in 1965 mm -hmm. are still being so disposable. This shows, I think, at the very least, it shows some real wet and imagination. Yeah. You know, nowadays, I always think about when Ron Mars left Green Lantern mm -hmm. and Judd Winnick took over in the 90s and Kyle Rayner, who's Green Lantern at that point, had been in a sort of holding pattern for a while. Right. And then um, Judd Winnick gave him a job and gave him a girlfriend and moved him along and stuff. Uh -huh. And it felt a little forced, but at the same time, it kind of flowed very naturally. Right. But it wasn't like Judd Winnick and, you know, Ron Mars had shook hands in the comic and said, right, you know... <laughs> It also reminds me slightly of... Did you ever read the Doctor Who magazine comic strip Voyager? A long time ago. I can't really remember it. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a scene at the end of that. The Doctor has triumphed over the Astrolabus character and Astrolabus is saying to the Doctor, you know, how long will you cope after I'm no longer telling your tale? Yeah. And the implication is this was a reference to Steve Dillon, who was the, the, the writer. Ah, OK. Um, that he was moving mm -hmm. on. So it's very often when there's a regime change or an, or an mm -hmm. approach to storytelling change... You get a brave new direction, first issue of a brand new era all over the cover. Uh -huh. You don't tend to see the editor literally putting the characters in the no, bin no. <laughs> in, the, in the panels yep, of the story. It's you know? <laughs> I love it. It's great. Again, it's also, as I said, Andrew Esposito, the way they draw it, you do see the panic on all the characters' mm. faces. And as you said, they're all individuals. They, they all look yeah. like actual individual people as opposed to generic bland faces in a crowd even the, the faces yeah. in the crowd are all individuals and it's just so good <laughs> absolutely yeah Ross and Poindexter but also the way they talk about fanzines and the signs as well that's an aspect of fandom that was rising up we've talked about Roy Thomas and Jerry Bales and uh, people like Michael Oslin and stuff like that who yeah, all of course. basically were creating fan comics or, or fan magazines about comics uh, right about that time and before and so obviously that's something that was mm -hmm. on the rise but that was a very 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 niche part of fandom yeah your average comic reader didn't really know about these guys or know what they were doing and really I unless you like lived near them yeah. or there was some sort of show on that you'd go to you wouldn't even know that the, the fanzines existed it reminds me of when I grew up as a Doctor Who fan in, in an absolute vacuum I right. didn't know any other Doctor Who fans and then 
when I was in my twenties and I met a couple of other Doctor mm-hmm. Who fans and became aware of fan culture. Right. And I, I'd heard of fanzines because I'd seen articles about them in Doctor Who magazine uh-huh. and all that, but it was finding out that people had opinions and people oft times didn't actually like Doctor yeah. Who. And this is a similar sort of thing. Or it's it's not my Doctor Who. Yeah. Yes. It's not my Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. There's probably a lot of, of comic fans in the sixties who bought and read the comics and that was it, who weren't writing letters or communicating with other fans or having opinions or trying to generate a sort of groundswell to try and mm-hmm. get the, the story direction of Wonder Woman changed. Yeah. This is probably a good point to talk about the reader reaction then to this issue. Yes, should we jump into the letters? Yes, absolutely. So, let's enter Wonder Woman's Clubhouse, where it says, Readers, sound off. Now, actually, there was a change. I should mention this as well just now. Up until fairly recently in Wonder Woman, uh, the letters were, for all intents and purposes, uh, answered by Wonder Woman herself. Right. But round about this time, it changed to being Robert Kanegar answering the mail as the proper editor. Okay. And this obviously is a change in the style. One thing I want to say before we get into the letters, mm-hmm. where we can when we've been doing the podcast, we've tried to include as much contemporary reader reaction yeah. as possible. It's always interesting to see, and I think generally what we've always sort of experienced is that by and large the readers were enjoying what they were getting. So uh-huh. it's very interesting that the Wonder Woman fandom was so dissatisfied. So anyway, there's an introductory letter at the start of this letters page. From Robert Kanegar. And he says, Dear fans, the mail is full of wonders these days compliments as well as booby traps i'll bet the time will come when i'll stop wondering whether a pat in the back is just that or someone looking for the best place to plunge a dagger for some real or fancied slights i may have committed to wonder woman if i had a private printing plant i would publish a whole book of nothing but fan mail even when it was anything but in the interim you'll have to be patient with the volume i am able to publish and as for the order in which it is received read and printed You'll have to hold me wholly responsible for a chaotic desk. Here are some waves from the sea of fans. Very, very interesting introductory letter there from Robert. Makes you think maybe some things are happening behind the scenes. So, the first letter goes something like this. Dear editor, have you flipped? You hit the jackpot with the two-parter, I, the bomb, and that great villain, Egg Foo. That's the real golden age, both in story and in artwork. Not a kindergarten return to a time, the 40s, which belonged back there and should stay there. It's all right to run origin stories so the new readers can find out what makes Wonder Woman tick, but please don't try to recreate a period both in story and in artwork which belongs in a museum. The one thing I liked about you is that you never catered to the demands of others. What's the matter? Is the inventor of Black Canary, Harlequin, Star Sapphire, etc. getting softening of the brain, the end or the beginning? Daring to spoof fandom was great. I caught all those private jokes. Yeah, I read fanzines too, but give us what you think is best, not fandom. You notice they never really come up with new ideas, only variations of the same old thing. Wow, nothing changes, eh? (laughs) So, stay as sour as you are, RK, and give us what you think is best. Not the golden age, it's strictly brass. Give us more of Mr Monster and Egg Foo, and you've got a faithful reader. Bury the past with the past, or the present will bury you. Happy dreams, very truly yours, Nicholas Elwood, Chicago, Illinois. Wow! Or the present will bury you. That sounds a bit threatening, doesn't it? <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, give us the response to that, PC. Yes, so Robert Kanegar says, Dear Mr Elwoods, I'd sure hate to meet you in a dark alley, but <laughs> your arguments are so convincing that I really can't answer you. Other readers will have to. I know I put my neck all the way out, daring to return completely to the golden age before our CC, copycat comic imitators, 
realise that DC is again originating, not imitating, but I'm going to stay out there in my lonesomeness and hope for the best. You know, I was just talking here about my experiences as a Doctor Who fan. Mm -hmm. That letter reminds me of so many Doctor Who opinions that I've seen voiced over the years when there's been dissatisfaction with the current creative regimes. You know, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Sylvester McCoy Doctor Who episodes, but there was a a huge number of people at the time who didn't like them and Uh felt that they should get back to the Philip Hinchcliffe and Barry Letts golden ages. They're obviously that letter that Mr Elwood is talking about, a completely different character in, in a comic rather than a TV series, but it's very interesting seeing the same arguments being used across different yeah. groups of fans over different things, isn't it? Like 50 years apart. <laughs> yeah, it's terrific. Yeah, nothing, nothing does change. Wow. Right, so the next letter. Dear RK, my hat's off to you for trying to recreate the golden age of comics with Wonder Woman, something that our loyal fans have been clamouring for years. And let me tell you something. You really are racing a dust storm. Word's getting around. Fans are buying Wonder Woman who swore they wouldn't. The fact is, Wonder Woman's getting to be one of the most fascinating characters around. You never can tell what the Amazon is liable to do next. Seeing the original style that made her so celebrated is like having a personal time machine of one's own, bringing one back to the golden age and reliving it through Wonder Woman. Not in back issues. Today, right now. Wow, what an idea. I wonder what fandom is going to do with all the oil it was going to boil you in if you keep going the way you have. The end or the beginning was a real funny. As far as I know, fandom being made a vital part of the story is an idea DC's CC comics haven't imitated yet. But they will if they think it'll sell. Best of luck, even though you may not need it. Sincerely, Cal Inzuch from Jersey City, New Jersey. So there we are. Reference again to CC Comics. Interesting how this lad's talking about people wanting the Golden Age to be sort of revived. When a lot of the stories we've done recently, like the showcase issues with Doctor Fate and Our Man and the B&B with Starman and Black Canary, have basically been stories that have been solely populated by Golden Age characters. And obviously the most recent Justice League Justice Society team up we've done uh-huh. had a real emphasis on the, on the JSA. Mm-hmm. I wonder what it was they were wanting. If the characters, given a lot of prominence, wasn't pushing their buttons, what else were they looking for? Yeah. Intriguing. Yeah. And so there's another letter. Dear Sir, it's a great idea, as an idea, but trying to recreate the Golden Age of comics simply can't be done. Now, I've been a faithful reader of Wonder Woman since my very early teens. I won't tell you how old I am now. That's a woman's privilege. And my teenage daughter will be the first to tell you so. But if there's one thing I've learned in life, it's that you can't stand still. You've got to keep going. That's what I know the editor of Wonder Woman has been trying to do all this time. Trying to make Wonder Woman better. Of course, he's often failed. But he's also succeeded. I, for one, enjoyed the teenage antics of the teenage secondary characters. Wonder Girl, Mare Boy, Bird Boy. Silly. Of course, so are teenagers. I ought to know. I was one, and I have one. I like the return to the Golden Age, but I don't think you should do it more than once, or it will seem completely out of place in today's world. People don't dress that way anymore for one thing, and today's problems are different. The villains are cute, but they belong in a costume movie, not in a magazine being published today. I know you must have a lot of critics on your back, I didn't mean to be one. Very sincerely yours, Mrs. Anne Satterwaite from Reno, Nevada. And the response to both the last two letters. Mm -hmm. Dear Mr. Inzuch, 
I want you to meet Mrs. Anne Satherwaite. It's really amazing how you can read the same Wonder Woman and react so differently. I guess that's what made fandom so interested in the Amazon, even when it hated what was happening to her. Could it be that despite what happens to her, Wonder Woman is more alive than most of our CC Comics imitations? Arcade, right. I don't get this CC Comics imitations. Do you know what that refers to? It's a running joke. You know how Marvel used to call DC the distinguished competition? Well, this yes. is uh, obviously something Kanaka was trying to cultivate about Marvel right. and calling them copycat comics, so CC. Ah, but it, okay. It never really caught on. I think it's nonsense as well, because at this point, especially Marvel and DC are light years apart. Yeah. In terms of what they were doing. Absolutely, but obviously he's trying to cultivate this idea. Yeah. So, that was the reader reaction. Not massively positive. I wonder if it's just the case of they had a really vocal fan movement and the sales weren't doing much and they thought, right, should we just try something different and see well, how it goes? Interestingly, the sales weren't brilliant, but they weren't falling. They'd been at the same level for quite some time. Right. I'm reading this somewhere. I think it's about the sixth most popular DC title at the time. Okay. So it certainly wasn't atrocious, but it wasn't setting the world on fire. So I don't know where this idea to go to the Golden Age style to reinvigorate sales came from, really, because the sales were there. They just weren't spectacular. It had yeah. been steady for some time. I mean, it's outselling anything that's on the shelves today. Aye, of course. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's a completely different world now, uh -huh. isn't it? I mean, yeah, and it was certainly not near cancellation at all, you know. I wonder if they felt, because it was Wonder Woman and, and she was such a staple character, mm -hmm. that they maybe just sort of thought, right, we can afford to try something different here. Yeah. And obviously, she undergoes an even bigger reboot in a few years' time, which we'll probably touch on when we get there. And that's the end of the Kanegar era. And basically, we're yeah. so close to that. I mean, is it Robert Kanegar himself who's thinking... I've been doing this for nearly 20 years and if I go back to the Golden Age style stuff I could maybe reuse some of those plots or maybe I prefer doing that style of story. God, yeah. Or no, you're, you're, yeah, you could be right. It could, yeah. it may that's well be that's that. a thought. Yeah. Going back to the actual story itself as well, I loved the very subtle touch that, that you mentioned as well. Uh, that when we saw Hippolyta in that final panel her hair colour changed back to you know the dark hair as opposed to the, the blonde hair that she had in the Silver Age on mm. Earth 1. That was a really mm. nice subtle mm. Uh, touch that they did it's quite a sophisticated sort of thing and uh -huh. it's the sort of thing that I can imagine it lends the reader a real sort of sense of sophistication as well I suppose they're in, they, they don't draw attention to it so they just assume yeah, that the reader's A going to spot it and B mm. know what it means if it was a flash story you might have had one of Carmine's amazing pointy finger captions yeah. saying can you see what's happened here uh, <laughs> pointy right <laughs> here <laughs> which yeah well, Absolutely. Lucy's a subtle type, it, was, it would be awesome Carmine hands, you know, any time he does hands, that'll <laughs> coming out of a panel. Sorry, uh, that's just me. So yeah, we've, we've obviously talked quite a lot about about this one, and our next episode we'll be doing one of the women issue 159, and talking about the subsequent issues to that one, so um, mm -hmm. there's still a lot more discussion of this very interesting little Wonder Woman period yeah. Yeah, to go. Mm -hmm. So that's what we thought about the story. What did you think about the story? Did you think Robert Kanagar is an early incarnation of the Time Lord known as Grant Morrison? <laughs> Let us know. Get in touch. <laughs> uh, you can email us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you follow us on Facebook. There's some really interesting panels we'll be putting up there and uh, some extra bonus material as well. So we're at the Earth 2 Podcast there. We're also at the Earth 2 Podcast on Instagram. And make sure you follow us on Twitter where we are at podcast underscore earth2. So thanks again for joining us. I've been Peter. And I've been David. And we will see you next time on The Earth, Earth 2 Podcast. Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime.
Under ah, under woman? Who's under woman? 